podcast. I'm here with one of someone I will say that I very much admire. She is an adventurer. She is very stylish. I've already told her today. <laughs> and she is, I mean, a record breaker, a world record holder. What would you say you are, Miss Stacey? Land Speed Racer with Bonneville Speed Records. Yeah, yeah. But not only that, I mean, you're a writer. Right. You obviously run, like, help run a, a motorcycle club here. Mm hmm. And that's just, I mean, a handful of things. You've got many, many of the artistry that you create and whatnot mm. and things. I mean, I'm barely scratching the surface here. So it's a pleasure to have you on here, Stacy. So let's, since I didn't get the chance to talk to you on that other podcast that shall not be named. Right. How did you get into this automotive stroke motorcycle world that you live in now? What was the genesis? How did this all come about? Okay, so I grew up in Culver City. Mm -hmm. um, the daughter of a school teacher, public school teacher, and my dad um, was a boat mechanic and boat fabricator um, who also has two land speed records at Bonneville um, with a car that he built. He went to, he grew up in Beverly Hills and hot rodding. Okay. Right? In SoCal. Yep. Um, and Beverly Hills had the Beverly Hills racetrack down there in the Flatlands, right? Right. So, so I mean, it's like, all about it speed. wasn't, it, it, it was orange groves, right? And then guys would drag race. So my dad was one of those guys and, um, he went into boating. And so I grew up with a gearhead and a teacher. And so I just kind of put those th two things together and my passions just developed from there. Um, my dad is not int interested in motorcycles at all. He thinks they're super dangerous and doesn't understand why you would want to ride down the street unprotected, like without the cage. So you're saying that your father will get on with my wife very well. Is that how I go in um, that regard? Most likely. My dad is, is a very nice, charming man. Most people really like him and get along with him. But they have the same thoughts in regards yeah, to motorcycles. Yeah, it's just like, you know, we didn't have two wheels much. You know, I've thought about it recently. Like, I didn't even ride a bicycle. Really? Yeah. It's okay. like so weird. Like I didn't do those things. Like after school, I went to ceramics class and oil painting classes and soccer practice. I didn't go around riding my bike. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even part of that um, childhood experience. But I did grow up in, in LA and you would see bikes all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was just part of my imagination where it's like, oh yeah, that's something I really want to do i mean look let's be honest being on a motorcycle when you dream about it, it's kind of romantic when you think about it you've got mm -hmm. the freedom it's like the modern horse rider totally well, exactly well and water your feet wherever you want to go so i also grew up just always wanting to wear cowboy boots and jeans and fringe like my mom would try to put me in dresses and i would just as soon as i could communicate <laughs> figure out how to communicate i would just throw a fit and just you know, there's pictures of me just kind of westerned out. So, yeah, I think there was – I had that imagination of just this freedom, open road, like going out there and living, and I didn't have any reason why I shouldn't, mm -hmm. right? So um, when I when I was ready to uh, buy a bike when I was in college, um, you know, and I worked all – all through school um, as a carpenter and a welder in the scene shop. I was a theater major at UC Santa Cruz. So I had my own money saved up and I was going to buy a bike because 
I started with a scooter to mm-hmm. get my bearings on two wheels. And then I was like, okay. it's Which scooter did you start with then? It was a Honda Elite. Okay. Um, was it a 50cc? Or oh, no, a... sorry. Honda Arrow. Okay. So before it was before the Honda Elite, they made a Honda Arrow, which was a, I think, a 175. Okay. So it could go on the freeway and could go 65 miles an hour, but... Yeah. You didn't I really want to go no, that often, 65 miles an hour. No, it actually would pull. It It went well. No, but I mean, it's the idea of when you're with everything around you on the scooter right. at so 65 I didn't, is a little I didn't, bit... Uh... Yeah, I didn't take it on the freeway. I was always just on a front edge road. Mm-hmm kind of riding Nip- next to the freeway. Yeah, nipping around town. Yeah, kind exactly. Of yeah. And like, it was really fun to be able to ride around campus on the scooter and kind of go the long way. I have these amazing memories of going the long way around um, Santa Cruz, which is redwood forest overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I mean, lovely part of the world. Um, right, that fresh air. Just, just It was the perfect... driving around looking for those banana slugs and you're good to go, right? Oh, so ch- um, and... So I was ready to buy a bike, and I told my mom that I was, that's what I was planning to do. And she kind of said, absolutely not. Um, you have money that you've saved, and um, your dad and I will match whatever you saved and get you a car, get you a safe car that you can commute in and you know come home and visit us and be able to drive around school and do something safely. And, uh, you know, I have a rebellious streak, but I've never been one to kind of let my parents down. I was always really concerned about upsetting them too much. And it was also, let's be fair, it's if matching 50-50s, it's a pretty good deal too. So it was a really great deal. Yeah. Super great deal. So then I go home and my dad and I proceed to start looking for a ranchero. Okay. (laughs) Right? And I think I'm going to get this really cool ranchero. My dad is super excited and... We're going out test riding and uh, driving, and my mom gets wind of it. Like, oh, what have you guys been out doing? You know, we're not keeping it a secret, but we're not really telling her what what's, what yeah, the plan you're, is. You're saying, look, I've got something in mind. It's nice. And she's like, what are you guys doing? No, I said something reliable. That means new and not classic. And I want you to be able to go up to Santa Cruz and down to L.A. and wherever you want to go in a safe way. So uh, she like totally just was like, "Er, no, absolutely not. Um, um, So we were able to figure out how to buy a truck um, at an auction. And I did end up getting a a two-year-old Ford uh, Ranger with an extended cab. She had no idea what a girl was going to do with a truck Mm -hmm. and why I wanted a truck. Um, But that's what I wanted. And that's, you know, I'm kind of, used to figuring out how to navigate and figure out how to, how to do that. Um, so I convinced her that a, a girl with a truck was a good idea and that it was a tool and that it was really useful. Be and practical, I could, right? Yeah, super things. practical. I and mean, that I worked in a scene shop and I could carry, you know, I mean, scenery and wood. It's practically and, unlimited storage, right? If you're stacking up. I mean, right. there's, no, there's no limit right there. So um, that's what happened. And so I had to put the motorcycle thing on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I graduated school, uh, I moved to New York and I actually ended up leaving my truck with my dad 
and lived in New York for three years where I didn't really need anything and yeah, kind of even New York's a little not, bit forgot about it. Yeah, New York's not really a car city, one would say, Mm-mm. especially if you're living in well, no. Manhattan anyway. And that was kind of the fun thing about it was starting to be able to commute with public transportation and get things done while you're in the train and get around. Um, I mean, the public transportation is great. Sometimes, obviously, New York in particular might have some bad days when it's hot and when it's cold. It's not ideal, but that's like everywhere with public transport. Right. But it, it makes you a stronger person, I feel. Uh, well, I, so I had the New York experience, and uh, I got into the film industry, and I started working as an art director and set decorator, and it just made sense to come back to L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, but I moved, rather than going back to the west side, I moved um, to the brewery. Um, and then later into Los Feliz Mm -hmm. and just staying more, um, you know, in East Hollywood, um, and got into working, just working so much and working freelance in the film industry. Didn't really think about the bike. And then, uh, I went to grad school. I went to UC, uh, sorry, not UC, anything actually art center Mm -hmm. for industrial design. Uh, I got a master's of science in industrial design. Another great school. And in a lovely, another lovely part of the world as yeah, well. Amazing, yeah, amazing. Amazing school, amazing experience. Being two years at Art Center was formidable. Just being in that, you know, laboratory of design and thinking and invention. And, and the talented people they have all around you. Right. Both the, the classmates and the, the teaching staff it as was well. Incre- yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't change it i would rather actually like to go back and keep doing more so it was a really wonderful opportunity um i also was able to work with um scientists from jpl from caltech artists um really important visionaries like annie chu and april griman and um uh, it really developed me as a thinker as a artist as a maker um I have to mention, you know, there's an incredible print making there. So uh, I had a, it was a, it was a really great time, just multidisciplinary, and and it worked in you know a lot of different levels. So of course, I mean, like you said, when you get and, something like that, and there's so many options, you just right. want to keep doing it forever and ever and ever. And then driving up the back way, mm-hmm. right through Glendale Hills into Pasadena. So living in Los Feliz, and then being able to drive into Pasadena, but through like this beautiful winding road, you know, every day was a pretty magical time. Um, so from going from finishing school, I went straight into work and, um, first working in architecture and construction as a project manager and developing plans and permitting and, um, did that for about five or six years. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as the, I opened a gallery, then I opened a gallery actually in Silver Lake um, where I was showing my work as an industrial designer, industrial artist, I was calling it, and then inviting other friends that were working sort of in the same areas of industrial art using industrial materials, um, creating a really nice uh, community of, of, of thinkers and makers we would, ha- I would have these um, dinner parties in the studio where I would invite an architect, an engineer, a scientist, an artist, um, a journalist, and we would all just have 
a, a meal together uh, in the in the gallery about once a month. So that was a really great time having the ga I had the gallery for three years, um, and then the economy was changing. You could see that there was something was shifting. Um, people were getting worried. The market was just, you know. You you remember that time? I do remember right? that. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight. The global financial crisis. Um, it wasn't so ideal it for was, everyone. Yeah, it was obvious that things were about to happen, and I knew that it was time to get a, a full time job. Mm -hmm. And I put my portfolio together, and with the help of some great friends who um, advised me of of how to present myself, I landed a job as exhibition designer um, at MoCA at the Museum of Contemporary Art, which I had that job for seven years. So it was the first time in my life that I actually had uh, a steady income mm -hmm. and reliable, you know, nine to five thing. And I start to th started to think about all the things that I wanted to do that I hadn't had the opportunity to do because I was always so worried about a paycheck or deadlines or... Um, one was going to Spain, so I traveled to Spain, and then the second one was getting a motorcycle. So that was actually in 2009, I got my motorcycle license, and my first motorcycle, which is, I still have, I rode it today, a 1969 BMW R60 US, um, which was just this, like, lucky thing that I was able to find this bike, uh, at a reasonable price, it needed a lot of love, which I had that. So I mean, you've got the skills to to, to give things a lot of love. I mean, you're talented right. in, in Wicard, and you've got the background right. there as well, right? To care and nurture and have a vision for what it could be. I didn't know anything about motorcycles at all when I decided that this was going to be this time that I was going to ride. I so I just sort of opened up Facebook and not Facebook. Fa I'm sorry, I opened up a Craigslist. And started looking for bikes. And it was really one of the first um, ads I saw was this was the, like, I knew that that was the bike. It fit the idea in my head of the kind of bike what that was, I would want to ride. Was it the look of it that then was the Yeah, the it was the look of it. Just the simple, clean, sort of industrial, really no-nonsense look of it. So it's like, okay, that's that's going to be my bike. And it just happened to be being sold by a man that lived um, in Hollywood. So I just kind of went down the street and saw it with a friend. Um, and then that was it. Like, had my bike. And like, suddenly... The hook was in. I became a vintage motorcyclist. And then, so how did the, the parents take it at this point? I didn't tell them for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it was like, well, by then I was like in my 30s. I'm like, they don't really need to know, do they? <laughs> Do they need to know? You still sort of had that guilty thing, though, obviously, yeah, knowing in the to back? totally. I'm like, oh, I need to figure out the right time to kind of break it to them that this is what I'm doing now. Um, um, was, But really, it was learning how to ride and is there figuring, any... out, figuring that out, figuring out what this all meant. And, you know, there are a lot of things that just started shifting after I became this vintage motorcyclist and is right? there any tips that you'd give anyone that wants to try and sort of talk to their significant other or parent about things like that of how they might go about it 
Sure. I mean, the best thing is to be really open and honest. So unlike you, basically, is what you're right? saying. Yeah, the opposite. But, but, and then just tell them, this is something I really want to do. Okay. This is really important to me. This is uh, on my bucket list of things that will be fulfilling to my life. And I know it's really dangerous. And these are the precautions I'm going to take. This is the process. These are the rules, the set of rules or parameters that I'm going to set up for myself so that I um, do it in a, I know it's right. It's like a really super dangerous life threatening thing, but if you do it in a careful considered way, you can kind of mitigate some of the risk, which is gear, right? Um, which is speed, which is the kind of bike that you're going to ride, maybe where and when you're going to ride taking classes, um, I think it's really important to dirt bike, like to go out where there aren't cars and figure out how to navigate and work with a bike and how your body responds to being on a bike. I mean, I didn't, even though I didn't grow up riding or being on a, a bicycle, I did grow up sailing. Mm -hmm. So I think that that ended up really helping um, being in a, a little sailboat by myself and figuring out what your body does and you know I played sports so there's understanding the agility and uh, the endurance that it requires and physicality of it and not being afraid to be physical you can learn those things if you've never done it before it just takes a little bit longer so going out to the desert with a dirt bike and falling out on the dirt. Where it doesn't hurt quite as much. Right. And there aren't cars that are going to... run you right over. Right. Yeah. 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 It's a lot better. So you're saying I should not, if it's me, for example, and show up to when Grace comes in from work, have two motorcycles with bows in them sat in the garage waiting for her to see, that should not be the way I should approach it? I, I mean, you can't, that's one way. <laughs> I mean, it just depends on how successful you want to be <laughs> and, and how used to confrontation you are. Yeah. I personally like to avoid confrontation as I much think, as possible. Yeah, I mean... It, I, like, it really stresses me out to... Look, I think that at this yeah. point in time, I think Grace is pretty sure that there's not going to be any bikes parked in that garage anytime soon. I think she's okay on that Well, front. I mean, you can... I have a garage that you can park a bike in <laughs> for the time being, which is actually what I did. I park... I My, my bike stayed at a friend's house in Atwater mm -hmm. that was super close to Griffith Park, so I could just hop on the bike and kind of ride around his neighborhood for a little while. And then when I was ready, I could go out into traffic. But it was not not hectic traffic mm -hmm. where I could just sort of like get over to Griffith Park and do laps around Griffith Park. Okay. And figure out how this whole thing was going to work rather than go directly into traffic or, you know, hectic situations. Like just to kind of keep it light and keep it. You get the practice in. Yeah, get some practice. Yeah, it's get, really get some practice miles. is really important. See, yeah. you know, they call it seat time. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe possibly growing up playing sports and going to soccer practice three days a week for you know, my whole childhood. It's like you start to understand that there's things that you need to practice and a routine that you need to get used to that becomes the more you do it, the more um, subconscious it becomes, yeah, and you're, second nature. it's just like yeah. body, you know, bo muscle memory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, it's important to be able to do that and know how you're going to react when something happens. You know, I mean, because I'm, things things are going to happen. Yeah. And now, you know, I've been riding for ten years. I have been in some very serious 
near-death experiences on a bike. And it's just really lucky that I'm here to talk about it, that I can tell my Story. stories. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I had a friend that uh, did something similar and, and purchased a, a, a scooter without telling his parents, but then when his parents did find out about it, he didn't have quite the uh, positive reaction from his parents. Right. They made him march it through town and then throw it in the lake. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's not very fun. Well, I know, and he, I think it was not the fact that he'd spent his money on the scooter and then had to get rid of it. It was more the humiliation of his dad berating him the whole way down, walking him down Main Street, yeah. and all his friends seeing him. Yeah. But he did learn his lesson. And and then what? Well, he he, he became very successful afterwards. So it's not so maybe his, his father did some right by him. Oh, okay. But then did he end up riding more? No, he definitely did not. He was oh, like he did that it? was no, that was it. That was the end. But he did. Funnily enough, uh, become get his uh, aircraft license, his pilot license instead. Oh, okay. So something totally safe, obviously. Okay, you're right. And then maybe joined the CIA. So another thing, totally safe, you know, <laughs> totally normal things to do. It's right. Speak, speak fluent Com- Russian, so it's totally fine, you right, know. Right, right, average. Yeah, just normal guy. Right. Yeah. So you've got your bike. Right. It's hidden at a friend's house. It's not really hidden. Well, it's like... I mean, because I live... I mean, I had my own it's, house. It's just not just in your kept, garage. Right. I mean, it could have been. Yeah. I don't live with my parents, yeah, but it didn't, no, yeah. but in the beginning, it just was a lot easier and like less confrontational, less stressful to mm-hmm. feel like, oh, I had like a friend that was gonna support me and help me, um, you know, figure this out, right? That I didn't have to just always worry about getting the bike in and out and did that by friend- myself, and especially, I mean, not. I don't advise going out and buying. A 1969. No, kick, anything. Kickstart only. Yeah, I wouldn't you know, have anything from pr- center stand, no side stand. Yeah, that's, I mean. 500 pound, yeah. like beast. It's really a beast, that bike. So it's like you drop it. You hope, don't hope it doesn't land any fault. You, you like figure out, yeah, you just figure out how you're going to. Lift it up. Figure, yeah, find someone With, to help uh, yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> three other people to try yeah. and pick it up. Yeah. And like, you know, it's, it's, so, so it took, it took some you know, creative thinking and planning and just figuring it out. And did the and, and I did stall a lot in the beginning where I would have to pull over, put the bike on the center stand, kickstart it back on. And, you know, so you... You get you used know, to things. Yeah, you get used to things and you learn, did, right? Did the person that you that stored it at, did they have a bike as well? So did they not have a bike? Kurt, yeah, my friend Kurt is a, okay. a motorcyclist. Which is, obviously that helps as well. Someone yeah. a little bit of experience and then maybe can help tune these things up or give you advice yeah, on... No. Well, okay. But yeah, well, but he and he has a similar bike. Okay. So yeah. And so where did it go from there? So now you've got the bike, you're riding so around. So now I've got the bike riding around. Um it just happened to be simultaneously I had restored and was operating uh a famous artwork by Chris Burden mm-hmm. called The Big Wheel mm-hmm. that includes a nineteen sixty eight Benelli. So it was it was just happened to be at that same time that I was doing that. So I was getting some attention for operating this bike and riding this bike in a museum and then making new friends that were also vintage motorcycle people, which I didn't even know that that was a thing, that there are groups of people that hang out together that only are interested in vintage motorcycles. And like I suddenly became part of this community that I wasn't expecting to be, which is like this... Really beautiful. I mean, I will surprise. say, motorcyclists are generally very nice people. Yeah. Most of the ones that I've ever get to meet. Some are of them are my best friends. Are now. Very, very yeah. nice. Yeah. It's <laughs> good, right? 
I mean, it's a lovely group of people, and it seems like that if you do have advice, there's someone that at least can talk to you about it, or you can talk to someone oh, about anything. Or hundreds of people that will give you, you know, a thousand different opinions. Yeah, well, that, that comes later, right? That comes later when you dive much, much deeper down that yeah. wormhole. But sure. So um, then I was told that I needed to go to the vintage motorcycle races. Mm -hmm. That uh, happen at Willow Springs once a year with Arma called Corsa Moto Classica. So I bought my bike in May and got my license in May of 2009. Um, so in April of 2010, um, I go to the races and I'm operating Chris Burden's um, artwork which uh, Paul de Orleans did a, rev uh, a story about and came, um, which um, this guy, you know, came to see me. Um, Dave Roper, you might have heard of Dave Roper, was in town um, for the races, so he happens to be the first American to win the Isle of Man. Um, so I told Dave that I was planning to go up to the races that weekend. He's like, oh yeah, sure. I'll give you a tour around the paddock. So I go up to the races and hang out with Dave Roper, you know, who we, we become fast friends, um, and decide, yeah, like I need to know what that feels like to be on the starting line and, um, like going around the track, I want to do that. And it's, like it's, I need to was, do that. Was that uh, was it on there or was the flat tracking? Which is the one? No, is it's this, road racing. Oh, so this is the road racing. Yeah, okay, this is road sure. racing. Yeah, because I know they have the different tracks there, so I just want to make sure. Well, right. Well, friends. right. Well, Dave Roper was in town. So right? it makes sense that the yeah. Isle of Man guy probably yeah, wanted to be doing be the road track. racing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, but I don't know if I've ever even seen Dave on a dirt bike. I'm sure he, you know, he's from upstate New York. They ride dirt bikes yeah. all the time. Um, but he, yeah, he's legendary road racer. So I felt really lucky that that was my, um, introduction to road racing. And then we end up being on the track together. Of course, like he's lapping me, but still that feeling of being lapped by a legend, living it's, legend. It's is, not bad being lapped by someone yeah, like that when you think about yeah, it. Like, they're always going past me again. It's super awesome. Yeah. So that's April of 2010. So I decide for my birthday in November, I'm going to get myself um a, a race bike like why wouldn't i it just seems like the most logical thing Next like step, normal right? thing to do that's what happens when you hang out with like motorcyclist legends or racing right. legends you know it's a bit of peer pressure that might or something rubs off on you maybe so a few friends uh help me find a bike that's uh in portland and gets brought down actually by the cretans they had one of their anniversary parties so the cretans in portland and seattle came down to la and um, I had my bike for my birthday, um, November 2010. I did road racing school first at um, in the desert at Chukwala mm -hmm. um, in March of 2011. And then April of 2011, I was racing at Corsa Moto Classica and did their road racing school because you can never do enough school no you can never especially yeah. in a racetrack it's yeah. always there's always new things you can learn especially so, from everyone else that was the beginning that was just like and you were hooked Good. i was super hooked and then the only other west they call the west coast pacific crown race is uh was at um in utah right at miller motorsports park at that time so i drove 12 hours to go out to miller 
And that wasn't going to be enough. I was like, how can that be? Only two races? No, no, there has to be more. And so I went to talk to Cindy Cowell, who's a race director, who actually passed away this last year of a heart attack, which is super tragic. But um, Cindy was very encouraging and helpful. And I told her that I wanted to race more, that I, that can't be it. She was like, well, and her husband um, teaches the the school. Like, well, you can come to Barber. Like, you need to just maybe just come to Barber Vintage Fest because that feeling of riding down the track with 15,000 fans is like a whole other thing. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, so I figured out how to get my bike to Alabama mm -hmm. and took some, I had sick time and, you know, holiday time and took some holiday time and went out to Alabama and raced at Barber. So my first year I got in three races, but in the meantime, I was still racing at Chukwala and getting my skills up. And I mean, they treated me, I raced in the three, three fifty. I think it was a three fifty or, Oh, sorry. The small displacement vintage bikes, mm -hmm. which went up to five fifty. So I'm on a one sixty and racing against like five fifties. I mean, it was, it was just really for me to get, my seat time in. Yeah, you were at this time with the, you wouldn't be really going for first place. I would suggest the podium, no, especially I mean, in that it, category in particular. If and, you're on a 160 and vintage versus... went up to 1980. Yeah. And so I'm on this, you know, <laughs> 1968, 160, kind of being treated more like museum, like, who are you, you weird girl on this bike that should be in a museum. Mm -hmm. So uh, I be, kind of became a mascot in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. People would just come by to see the bike and talk to me and, like, didn't understand, like, why I would want to do that. Why Why wouldn't you want to be at least on a ninja where you can kind of start scraping your knee around, you know, it's a beautiful 17-turn track. But, you know, I showed them it was that it was fun, that it was, like, a, a great thing to do. As long as you're and enjoying like, yourself. I'm like, are you racing at Barber? Are you racing at... Road America or Groton or New Jersey Motorsports Park. Like, I got to race in some amazing tracks with Arma, and it was because I was on a vintage bike. You know, then later I was able to go to Sonoma a few times. I mean, and meet people from all across the country on this in this really great organization. Um, so I did that um, for about six years. Uh, and met really wonderful people, generous teachers and mentors. Um, one, which is Ralph Hudson and Ralph Hudson kind of just because his shop is in Glendale, one little project led to the next little project. And before I knew it, I was opening up the engine and figuring out how pistons and valves work and cranks and getting the bike to go faster because that was really my goal is that I wanted to understand how this thing worked and just having the right um, teacher and the tools. And Ralph is an incredible engineer. Yeah, kind of. And yeah. his own unique way, I will kind say that. Of. Yeah, he happens to be the fastest living person on the planet on an upright motorcycle. Um, he made a record last year of, I think it's 297, but did hit the 300 speed. I think he... 
So. And I think it's also, uh, I could say that he would like to go faster. Yeah, he was disappointed that he didn't make his record at 300 miles an hour, that he came back like just at 297. So he understands my feeling would that you I... Would you talk to him a little yeah, up before we started recording? Yeah. So he understands my disappointment. Um, so yeah, I was really lucky that Ralph and I were compatible to work together and that he was also so generous with his time and his expertise that um, he, I designed an, an exhaust and he helped me put it together. He welded it and fitted it. And, you know, there were a lot of things. Like I said, one project does led to the next. And um, what was really important to me was returning his generosity. So while Ralph does road race, which is how we met with Arma, his main thing obviously is land speed racing. So that's when I started going to El Mirage once a month and working with his crew um, was in 2012 um, and started learning about the whole land speed racing community, um, which was cars and bikes with the SCTA. And, um, you know, I, I remembered that my dad has two land speed records. He never raced at El Mirage but at Bonneville. So then I also got to go to Bonneville with Ralph, which is a, a dream for, I think, any gearhead is to get, it's like, you know, the promised land yeah, just in to a walk lot of ways. On the, on the salt yeah, plants, I would say, even yeah, let alone race. I mean, it's fantastic. It's huge. So, um, so in 2015, the, for the 2015 season, which is actually awarded in the beginning of the 2016 season, Arma uh, awarded me Lady Road Racer of the Year. Um, so that seemed, I finished out the 2016 season and it seemed like a good time to put road racing on pause and start land speed racing. So that's when I researched with Ralph which classes to do, which, which bike, we talked about which bike would be the right bike for which class that seemed like the record's were maybe a little soft and, you know, something that could be realistic to shoot for rather than just getting any bike and just shooting for going out and going fast. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have a goal in mind and focus in on something so that you could work something, work yeah. towards something tangible. Yeah. It's, it's always great to achieve something. Right. Yeah. It's important. Especially if you're going to have all this money and time invested, you wanted to have, I at least wanted to have something to show for it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I always liked the Aramakis. Um, so it just seemed really like the most obvious thing was to get a 250 Aramaki Sprint. And I started doing the research and putting the word out that I was looking for one. And I was calling everybody, like all over the country. And then it just turned out that a friend of mine um, in San Francisco had had one that he had finished um, restoring and getting road ready, but had sort of switched over to 350s. 350s are considerably faster and zippy, more torque, and just if you're going to be riding on the street and wanting to to do any kind of long distance with it, the 250 is not very practical. So um, we struck a, a deal, and the deal was a really fair price but as long as I promised that I was actually going to follow through and race it 
was like, well, yeah, like, <laughs> like, come on, yeah. Have you not seen me? Like, Look, here's my watch behind me. Like, Look. that's the plan. Like, I don't, I have What's a really hard time just talking about something. If I talk about something and I put it out there, then I really need to do it. And I, um, it's like a shortcoming and not, you know, not mm-hmm. a shortcoming, but because I, if I talk about that, I'm going to do something. And if I don't do it, I get really, I feel really guilty or that I've, um, represented myself in like a way that's not honest or something that I don't really, I make an effort to not be a talker and, um, it just feels dishonest to me for some reason. I think that that's just has a lot to do with my parents. Um, and, my dad especially of like the things that they instilled in me. So as soon as I said that I was going to land speed race, I was super determined, like, yeah, that's what I was going to do. And, and I knew that it would be possible because I was going to have Ralph's help, right? Like it would, I would not be able to do it without that support system. It's handy when you've got one of the fastest men on the planet in your back corner to help you out and give you some tips. Yeah. You think? Yeah. 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 Kinda. Um, but the Aramaki was not an easy bike to work on. Um, it is a bike. I mean, it's Aramaki is a company, Italian company that they first made airplanes, right? That's how they made their mark. And during the second world war, they was part of the Italian, right? And most of Europe, uh, European agreement that they wouldn't, um, make any more, right. Um, uh, machinery that was war based. So rather than, they were just looking for something else to make. And, uh, there are a lot of small motorcycle companies popping up. And so that's, they saw an area in the market that they could use their resources and their machinery. Um, and that's what they did. They made these incredible, um, little powerful bikes made by airplane, right. Engineers. Um, they were so good that when Harley was looking to get back into the racing game, they went to Italy and tested all the bikes and had um, a, a testing system, right, and a report that was made. And they felt that Aramaki was the one that the only um, Italian manufacturer that had reached everything that they wanted to. Um, you know, be a part of as mm-hmm. a company and collaborate with. So they, that's how Harley's, uh, Aramaki's came to the United States is that, um, Harley went into business with them, but because they were such great bikes, but that posed a really difficult time when you're trying to work on it and make modifications to it. Um, everything is just made to the hilt and, um, and some things really difficult to work on, uh, you know, and then other things hidden and you're like, what were they thinking? Like by doing it that way, like now we know that there's other ways that are better to do it or, you know, easier to work on or other materials that are maybe uh, not as hard, but it makes it a really durable bulletproof bike. So it was a perfect uh, racing platform to start on for me, especially being a single cylinder, which is like, you know, it's a lot nicer just to worry about one, then in, one piston. Yeah. Then more. <laughs> yeah. And also can sort of maybe help with keeping costs and things like that. Exactly. As well. I mean, everything that 
I mean, it's the reason why I raced a 160 and why I moved on to this other really small bike is that I'm a privateer racer working on a really tight budget. You know, at the time I was working for a nonprofit arts, you know, company. And now I'm working freelance and just trying to piece together a budget to keep, you know, satisfying the the process. I really feel like I'm involved in this creative um, process that I have to just keep going with it. And I feel uh, being like, it's not just sure, like there is an addiction to the adrenaline and going to see my racing family every month and being a part of this other dynamic, but it's also being part of this other sort of uh, intellectual and creative process that I just want to keep doing and keep seeing and keep pushing. And that's what discipline is. Like racing has really taught me discipline. And um, I tell people that, that sometimes I just feel like I'm a fifth generation noodle maker and I'm still trying to figure out how to make the most perfect noodle. Right. And I haven't done it yet. So when I figure out how to make the most perfect noodle, then maybe I can stop doing it. But like, I know that I can do better. So I need to kind of keep trying to do better and just keep going back to the shop and keep, you know, breathing and not getting frustrated and going back. But you know, it requires capital. So being in a one in a, in with a small displacement bike, Right, I'm going into my third season road race. Uh, sorry, flat um, land speed racing. That I, I like, I get to use the same tires. It's like not as much oil. It's you know, everything. It's like twenty yeah. horsepower. Yeah, the- it's one piston instead of, you know, four or eight, um, two valves. So, as cost effective as it is, it's still. Yeah. It still costs. Yeah, it still costs. But with the, the costs that come into it, you do have some achievements that have come out of it, though. Yes. Thankfully, I do. I have had um, really great luck in being successful with it. So the first season was a trial season, um, which was a lot of testing with a bike that was fully stock, mm-hmm. right? I was I was received this bike, a running bike, Um so and did you have to switch? Was it still done to three hundred and fifty when you got it? And you had to switch it back. No, to no, it was a two hundred and fifty. Okay. That was okay. all two hundred and fifty. Um, I mean, I was even considering racing in the production class, mm-hmm. which is completely stock and everything still there. But you know, after talking and deliberating with Ralph, um, I stuck with the two hundred and fifty modified pushrod class which allows some changes, but being on a budget, I made as few changes as possible, but it's, and it's, but it's also really cool to see a stock bike at the racetrack, um, you know, going to the limit. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make changes in a, in a really calculated way and not, not be gratuitous about it and keep the bike original. So, um, I mean, let's be honest, you're an artist as well. You've got your design right, aesthetic, and right. you that's what you like, and it's a right. great look. Look, fantastic. So, and and to learn about the bike, to mm-hmm. understand what the bike is capable of, keeping it stock um, was a really good test of of, of learning about what, what changes to make. 
So I did really well um, at El Mirage and Bonneville the first year. I think I came like within 1.333 from a record at Bonneville or making it to impound. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do, uh, I think, 17 runs um, at Bonneville the first year, which is like kind of... It's a lot of runs. Yeah, it's extreme. 17 is a big number, yeah. It's extreme. It was just me... Keep getting in, back in line, yeah, back in say, line, oh, back the, in line, back in line. The guys at the front would have been like, oh, everyone's like, oh, that girl's back again. What you doing? Well, I mean, I was also on the rookie course, what they call the rookie course. Oh, okay. Um, but it's also the course for the small displacement bikes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's really after the first few days, people move on to course two and three mm-hmm. because they're just there to like get their rookie run in and then move on or hit a certain speed and move on. But that was... So by the uh, by the fourth day, no one was in line. It was just you. So I think I think in the fourth day, I think I did five runs in a row, just like would run and then go back and run and go back, and there was no one in line. I had the track to myself. It's, it's like the it's like the, the dream idea. It at was Disneyland. amazing. Look, it was like super everything amazing. Everything in line. The star, my starter that day was Nick Arias, and we still talk about it like to that day that it's like I bought out the track for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, I, which is not bad for testing, really. Is no, it, good it was bang amazing. So I was really close. Like I was really on it. That I really thought like that it was going to happen, but of course it it's like that's when it breaks. Mm-hmm. So I broke a valve, and like that was it. But you know, it was till then. It was a very very it was very awesome. Good time. It was awesome. So um, I got the bike back together. Um, not for the September El Mirage, but October. So then I raced in October and then did some more tuning. And I thought November was going to be it. Um, I was going to be able to end the season with a record at El Mirage at least. Because I was so close um, and took it to the dyno. I had this idea like, okay, I'm going to just take it to the dyno and see what happens. But like so many people before me have said it broke at the dyno. Um, the guys just weren't sensitive enough about the vintage equipment mm-hmm. and didn't handle things in the way that, and I went alone. I think I should have gone with a support mm-hmm. so that it, I didn't feel like I was, had like these three guys around me with the bike and it just me like trying to check everything and learn every and figure everything out. I should have had someone, you know, it's like, that's one of the issues about, Ralph being my crew chief, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what he is, is like, he's the person that I call all the time and helps me tune the bike. Mm -hmm. It's like the tuner should have been with me, but because he is, (laughs) has this super ambitious racing program himself Mm -hmm. and his own goals that I'm lucky enough to get just some time. And, um, I really need a, not, I really need, but my racing program would really benefit from a dedicated person and another set of eyes that are always with me and can watch things along with me where Ralph is out trying to break a 300 mile an hour record. I'm, I'm not going to get on him for not being able to go with me to the dyno at all because he was with me on the phone the whole time Mm -hmm. while he's prepping and working on his stuff. Like he's so generous to a fault, um, that, but I could see in ways how my how things would could run differently if I had that, like I said, dedicated person. So November wasn't to be because then I broke another another valve. Um, 
but then it was, uh, at least then it was the end of the season and I had all of January, February, March to prep the bike for May, um, and be able to talk to and consult with other, um, Aramaki specialists, which one is Fred Mork, who I, uh, is a road racer and trials and flat track that I know from, um, Arma. And he has a huge collection of Norton Manx and Aramaki's and like tons of other things. So he's been an incredible resource and I'm so lucky to be able to, to talk to him about what is, what happens, what I'm dealing with in a, because he has the experience of knowing what expectations I should have with the bike and how much I could push it, how far it should rev, um, what the, where the power band is, um, what valves to use, what piston to use, like things like that, because he mm -hmm. just has, I don't know, 20 or 20. A couple, th let's say a couple yeah, of bikes. A few, no, 20 or 30 years oh, experience, experience. Yep. is what I was going to say with, with, um, that. So, um, I don't know. And then Shane Weeks, Shane Weeks is, um, builds the heads for me and does, um, airflow, um, and it's just been a little bit. We've just sort of scratched the surface. It's really Shane, um, now that we've been talking and we've been seeing how the bike is progressing, he has other ideas that he wants to experiment with and thinks that should be done to the bike. Um, now that, but you have to, like, that's why it takes so many years to develop a racing program is because every time you go out, you can only make really one change. Yeah. Right, so because if you make two changes, you don't know which one worked exactly and how, worked, had a difference between the two. So, I mean, most people it takes a few years or more to make a land speed record. So, some luckily, then like that May, May of this last year, May of 2018, I went out and I made a record. Um, and then I went out in June and I made another record, I bumped it up a little bit more, and then um. Too bad July was canceled, um, and then was time for Bonneville. So then I prepped the bike to go to Bonneville um, Speed Week and had my eyes set on two records and um, went out the first day and landed in impound on the first day. Um, and so then, what does it mean when you say landed in impound? Okay, so El Mirage and Bonneville differ in many ways. And the main, the main way is that you, uh, El Mirage is a mile and a third, mm -hmm. and it's basically a drag race. You get to the timing light, and they mark your time at that time. If you make a good time that is above the record, then it's, then it's a record. And you go to impound, and impound is where they check your bike again, really in detail. You go through a tech inspection um, in order to be able to race, and then if you um, break a record, you go back to impound and back to tech inspection, and they measure your stroke, your bore, um, and your gasoline to make sure that it's legal, right? You have to be legal. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did. I took the bike apart, and with all these people watching me, you know, I took the, the head off and got to the valves and uh, got to the, you know, inside the piston, and they everyone's just like watching me, right? No pressure. No pressure. But it was like I had done it 
at least a hundred times before, right? And they're like, how do you know how to do that like so quickly? I'm like, because it's my. I don't I do. know because uh, like I've done it a hundred times. Like you know, Friday night I did it like twenty times <laughs> to get the bike to even run properly, and so it, it, yeah. I don't know. It's it's different for people to see a woman working on a bike. It's mm-hmm. no big deal to see a guy doing that, but all of a sudden a woman's doing it, and it's I don't know. I think it's no big deal, but I guess it kind of is. Yeah. So I'm getting used to the fact that it is, but I. Because I've always done things that are just... Unusual. A little unique, maybe. Learning how to weld or learning how to build something. I didn't really think about that. what gender I was or what genders were allowed to do things. I, it was just something that was in my mind that I wanted to do. And I knew I could do it, so I just did it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... And I was lucky enough that I was in Santa Cruz that is a progressive school and, you know, they didn't make me feel like I was uh, unwanted or an alien or a weirdo, you know, or a minority. Yeah. Um, so I just always carried that with me that um, if there was something that I wanted to do, I just figured out and put my team together, you know, and went out and did it. So, um so that's that's what happens. So after you break you break the speed and then you go to impound and they say that your bike passes the inspection, then you make a record, right? So when you say that you get to go to impound, it's a really big deal because yeah. it means that you've qualified for a record and then then becomes all the paperwork and um you know, the 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 nervous part. So at Bonneville on the first day, I uh, qualified for a record and went to impound. At Bonneville, it's a little bit trickier because um, you have to, your time is averaged between two points. So uh, for instance, I was on the short course, so you get to speed up to one mile. So then at the one mile mark, um, you hopefully are at speed, mm-hmm. right? And then you between it's between they measure you between diff- different distances, so they measure you at one mile, and then they measured me at two miles, and then those two measurings um, get averaged. So my average speed was like in the eighties, even though I probably hit um, you know over ninety. Right, it's like a very slow bike. It was really a test run for me. I hadn't ridden it since I was had put it all back together. So I was really surprised that I landed in impound, but I knew that it was just barely gonna make gonna make it and that um the next day so you go to impound and they do all the measurings but then at Bonneville you have to stay in impound. You stay in impound overnight because um you've only qualified you still have only qualified for a record. So you have to back it up at Bonneville and do it again and prove that your bike can actually do that speed. So all the bikes that um, have qualified for a record do record runs at seven in the morning. So you have two hours to work on your bike once you arrive to impound. And then you have to walk away and leave your bike in impound overnight 
so that they know that you haven't made any changes and everything is exactly as it was, um, that you've just done maintenance, maintenance basically. And then you arrive back at impound at six in the morning and you watch the sunrise on the salt with the other people that have qualified for records, you know, like legends all around you. Um, and you get to do your record run on really clean, fresh salt um, when it's cool, right? Which is the best time to run the bikes or cars. Um, air pressure is low. I mean, that's the thing about Bonneville that makes it so difficult is that as it gets later in the day and the heat rises, um, the air pressure changes dramatically, which especially on an old bike like mine that is, you know, jetted, it just can make a really big difference of where the power band is and how uh, hot the engine's gonna gonna run. Mm -hmm. So um, I did my record run, yeah, and I made a record on the second day. So I got one out of the way. Um, it wasn't as fast as I thought it was gonna go because Ralph and I had done so much work on the engine and um, we were able to um, install a uh, a race piston that mm -hmm. had a higher dome, a higher compression, and raised the compression quite a bit, um, measured, and we just thought that it was going to make so much more power, and we couldn't figure out, I mean, we did in the end figure out why, but um, there wasn't much I could do while I was at Bonneville, um, and that Ralph had his own issues going on with his own bike then he was ch g going for some really amb ambitious records with his what he calls his small bike which is a 600 um so um i had a lot of gremlins at bonneville i had a lot of work to do on the bike um worked worked on it a lot um long hours on the salt and in the sun with the bike and um so I went after the fuel record. Mm -hmm. So um, during the, the rest of the season, I had prepped the bike to be able to do gas and do fuel. There were just a few modifications that need to happen to be able to compete in the fuel class. And even though I wasn't running fuel, but I could, I could still do that. Um, and then I wanted to go after the gas record. The gas record was quite a bit higher. Um, so there were a few people that came over and said, well, why don't you do... Uh, uh, partially streamlined, um, which is still in within the 80s. It's mm -hmm. not in the 90s yet. So I built a tiny little fairing out of cardboard. I went into the trash and made a, you know, my crafting skills was just like, you know, they said that all I needed to do was turn the headlamp around and it would be considered partially streamlined. But I didn't really want to mess with the bike. Like I thought that that would be a can of worms. Mm -hmm that I just didn't want to go down that road. So, and it was easy enough for me to make something really quickly. So that's what I did. And then spray painted it black. And so it matched the bike. The bike is black and wrapped it on my bike with black um, electrical tape. And I took it back um, to tech inspection and registered for a new class, which is actually a new number. Mm -hmm. And um, like they couldn't, everyone was really surprised and impressed with this tiny fairing that I came up with um, and it looked like it was 
you know, always was there in a lot of ways. So, so that was really cool and started going after the second record. And it took three, I landed in Impound every day. And so I spent every night in Impound, um, which was really exciting to mm-hmm. be able, but also really tiring. It means also yeah, getting up early, getting up at five in the morning, mm-hmm. every morning. And, um, and day after day after day, day after day. After, and, and the stress, obviously, it, the, the, the stress and the fatigue of just being at the bike and uh, being out on the salt flats. Cause there's not really that much shade there. No, no shade, very dry, you know, staying hydrated, you know, the anxiety, I have a hard time eating, mm-hmm. um, when I'm under that much pressure, staying focused, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the while, like, seeing friends, people coming by, the attention, wanting to talk, of, you know, I'm working on the bike so that people want to come over and chit-chat about, oh, what do you know, you know, and it's like, a, it is a spectator sport, mm-hmm. um, which is all good, I'm not complaining, it's all beautiful, it's all part of the experience, but, you know, I'm there to do something, to, race. to achieve something, so, um, and I was having some issues, so, even though I was spent you know every night in impound which was awesome it took three tries to get the second record and then Mm -hmm. on third friday was the last day on thursday morning um it was something like at you know 7 30 in the morning i made the the second record which was really awesome it was like such a relief and i was so happy um and so proud right that it was something that was part of the plan and Ralph and I talked about doing that and that, that, that it happened, that mm-hmm. I made it happen. Um, and even the motorcycle inspectors were so proud of me, um, that they had come up with an award to give to somebody, um, that year. And, um, I ended up winning the award. So Thursday afternoon, they awarded me, um, this plaque, um, that is called the biggest balls of Bonneville. And it's actually a pair of gold bulls balls mounted to Truck nuts kind of thing. Yeah. But, but, but gold. Yeah. But gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just really sweet of them to do that in such an honor. Um, uh, a little embarrassing because I'm kind of a modest person, but like so sweet and wonderful and, that they recognize how hard I was working and wanted to, um, you know, honor it some way. So then finally, like Thursday and Friday, my crew, um, which I also have to mention, I had an amazing crew um, working with me at Bonneville. Um, we had the, finally had the days off where we can enjoy some racing. Mm-hmm. And just relax a little bit. Yeah, relax. I mean, because remember you're there. To, remember to eat this yeah, time. Yeah, and you're, you're there to see some racing, too. I mean, uh-huh. Danny Thompson was there. I mean, there were some really big cars, uh, like, basically missiles out there that you want to be able to see, like, history being made all around us, mm-hmm. that we are so focused and we are getting so tired that it was it was time to, like, get into some of the fun of being at Bonneville. And I will say it also, since I've never been, I'd very much like to go. It looks very beautiful as well. It's, yeah, it's gorgeous. So it's... Absolutely, like, stunning. Your the mountains are all wrapped around you. I mean, the salt and the white and the sun and the, the sunsets are breathtaking. Um, I don't... Re- you can't really see this, 
I mean, I'm sorry, the sun rises. You don't really get to see the sunset um, because you get kicked off the salt by eight. Mm -hmm. So you have to be kind of driving away. The salt closes down, which is another part of the stress is that you have to get your work done mm -hmm. because you, 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 ha you have go. to leave. Mm -hmm. um, you can't do an all-nighter at the racetrack, for no, example. No, no all-night. I mean, you can, but just not on the, on salt. the salt. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to go into Wendover, which is, you know, it's it's not far, but it's a drive. So, yeah, sun rises on the salt. There's, I don't know, nothing better. So since we talked about the racing, what about the stuff that you do here in L.A.? That's the, the non-racing stuff that you do with the motorcycle. So then the non-racing, or, yeah, the non-racing that I do while I'm at home, I live in Silver Lake, is uh, I founded a women's motorcycle club in 2010 called the Eastside Moto Babes. So we have a weekly ride on Tuesday nights and then a monthly meeting where we get together and, I don't know, make plans to do stuff. Our big event that we do is called Babes on Motos, where we have been documenting Los Angeles's females, female motorcyclists since 2010. Um, and we invite a photographer um, to come photograph women that ride in on their motorcycles and then it's just turned into just, you know, a fun party, barbecue. Um, we've done them at night with bands. Um, it seems to be a little bit easier to do it during the day, like a Sunday barbecue, because then it becomes more family-oriented. Um, and um, we invite women um, to sell things that they've made or um, manufacturing companies that make gear for women. So in the past, we've had Bell and... Alpine Star and even um, Long Beach um, BMW and Pro Italia have participated and brought things to like you know that are focused for a female motorcyclist. Sure. And yeah. then so with that being said, what uh, I mean, how many members are in the East Side Motor Babes? Uh there's about I would say 18. It fluctuates. Mm -hmm. About 18 I think right now. Um four that are super active that come to the meetings every month and then people that just come in and out it's uh you know it just depends on what people's time and schedule is i mean it's extracurricular activity so and then if any like any of my female listeners are wanting to know more what should they do if they want to like learn about more about biking here in la is there anything that you suggest for them in their regards to that um, well, they can come to a Tuesday night ride. Mm -hmm. um, Do they need a bike, or can they maybe no, try and hop on just with someone? Ride? Or and just hang out. We yeah. we pick a spot. Um, we usually meet up at eight, mm -hmm. and then the ride starts at nine, and then we ride for about forty five minutes, um, which turns out to be a really great time to ride around L.A. because the streets are empty, so we have it all to ourselves. There's no traffic, and it feels really fun to be able to kind of take over a little bit, take, take the city over. So, yeah. you know, you can find us on our, we have a Facebook page and Instagram, um, that we keep active. Um, uh, I don't know. No, I was going to say, yeah. and then, so now I'm just going to ask for, for 2019, what are your goals that you've set yourself for 2019? So, and then I have a part-time job. I got really interested in apparel, mm -hmm. um, and wanted to take a break from, um, museum and um, the art world mm -hmm. and um, kind of feed a little bit more of that vintage heritage um, 
I don't know, curiosity mm-hmm. that I had. So I got a job with uh, Ralph Lauren has three luxury brands. One was a luxury denim line called Double RL. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have been working with Double RL. It was a year in September. And last year I was able to organize three events for them. So some of it is brand outreach. Um, but then another one is that they start everyone at the bottom as a um, sales associate. So I started doing retail, which ended up being at the new Fred Siegel which is on Sunset and La Cienega and met this whole other group of really beautiful people and like people I would have never met except for that experience. Um, Fred Siegel is a multi-brand store. So it's just this really interesting, you know, amalgamation of, of a beauty supply and, uh, children's store. Do they and have a restaurant at that one? They have they have a cafe. Yeah, I was gonna say. And then a restaurant also across the plaza, mm-hmm. Tess. So it's good food. I mean, I go to the one at Melrose, yeah. and the food is good at the cafe. It's great. It's really good. Tess is really delicious food, which is about to take over the cafe again. The cafe. Well, anyway, that's all. Whole their story. So being in that environment, I was only there two days a week, but. You know, I'm used to making events mm-hmm. and putting on exhibitions and doing stuff. So I saw them putting on these pop-up events. I was like, oh, interesting. I could do that. So I started brainstorming and came up with this idea of a multi-brand um, kind of pop-up event. Mm-hmm. So I talked to my friends in Belgium who have a denim line, Eat Dust. Um, and then Red Wing. I'm a Red Wing ambassador. And... Uh, my uh, my friend Larry News, who's this incredible photographer, documents um, the United States basically and do, does road trips, Americana. Um, another friend of mine, um, Tina, who does pottery in her backyard basically in Pasadena. Um, and then Rabbit Trading does jewelry. Well, who else was in it? And then magazines, like I know magazine um, – people which is like clutch magazine and um men's file magazine um dice magazine and i asked them if they would want to participate in this multi-brand pop-up event and they were all just like sure like you organize it uh make it happen and we'll you know we'll provide the stuff to be there so with the help of eat dust we came up with a date when they could be in town so I mean, obviously it's a bit of a ride from Belgium, a bit of a right. drive. Right. Well, yeah. like the to have the designers from Belgium be at the store for the event was cool. was really cool. So Madre Mescal and um, came on board to help with the event, um, and it was really fun, you know, party. And then the pop up was there for a month, and then Larry's um, photography. I asked the cafe if I could take over this hallway in the cafe that was empty. And they're like, sure. Like, if you want to start curating stuff there, do whatever you want in this. You know, it's like this funny hallway, but it's actually the most used hallway in the building because mm-hmm. it's right outside bathrooms. So Funny that, right? Yeah. So Kith, the, the, the shoe store Kith is downstairs, mm-hmm. and they don't have a bathroom. So even those customers come up. Have to go up, yeah. So Fred Siegel comes up. The cafe is like that's so it's the most used space in the building. Mm-hmm. So I started curating things there. Um, then I put in my friend Heidi Zumbrum's photography, and um, I ran into um, 
the CEO of Fred Siegel on the street after lunch one day. And he's like, it's John. He's like, it's so cool that you've just turned that hallway into a gallery. And I was like, oh yeah, I kind of did. Didn't I? I never really thought of it that way, but I did. And then I was like, wow, you know, it's just like having one of those shower thoughts. Like I should maybe name it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to name my gallery. So I named it the Lair Gallery and talked to the manager of the cafe and asked her if I could kind of kick it up a notch and um, like really make it a, a proper gallery and do press releases and reception. And she's like, yeah, that would be great. So um, our next, uh, my next uh, event is going to be with Brian Bent, um, who's a painter, skater, surfboard you know, amazing persona also has this ska, um, surf punk band with his daughter. He's on the guitar and sings and she's on drums called the bent duo. So he came by on uh, December 30th to see the space and he was super into it. So that was awesome. That got him on board and we're planning the next opening to be February 8th. Um, Friday, February 8th from 9 to 11 a.m. So it's art, art, coffee, skate. We're going to do a skate jam. That's so fun. we're bringing his, he has a Ford jalopy that we're going to set up in the plaza with a skate ramp. And um, yeah, it should be, it should be really fun. Really, I don't know. We'll see. No, it, it Kinda sounds like, great. I like mean, cra- I'm loving the idea. Yeah, crazy, crazy unexpected Mm -hmm. magic that's just going to happen on this Friday morning. It happens to coincide with inspiration LA and, um, the secondhand revival, um, which are these incredible vintage heritage, um, events that go on in Los Angeles once a year. So, you know, friends from all over the world come for, um, that are specifically like into vintage clothing and vintage cars. So, I'm hoping that some of those people will come out to support and see, um, yeah, Brian's work. And then what about the racing side of it then when we step back into that for 2019? (laughs) Yeah, and then racing, hoping to step it up and just keep going and put together the racing program in order to be able to afford to um, go after the next set of goals and the next set of uh, modifications that – Shane wants to make, Mm -hmm. you know, which will also require suspension work because I'm already going down the salt in like that, that wormhole is just opening right up. Well, it's like a, it's like a 90 mile an hour speed wobble for Mm -hmm. two miles. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as I'm off the line and, you know, I get into the 80 mile an hour range, it's already like, I just embrace the speed wobble and try to like not hold it, but hold it. And I can kind of, cause I don't have a speedometer. I just mm-hmm. have a tachometer. I can gauge my speed on how much of a wobble I'm in. And if I want to, I really would like to get into the hundred mile an hour zone. If I want to get into that area, I need to, uh, figure out my suspension and get rid of that wobble because it was one of the reasons why I held back. So in June I went 97.998. Um, at El Mirage and it was one of the reasons why I held back a little bit because I couldn't I couldn't hold the bike it was all over the place so from there I did rebuild um, the head and some of the things but um, I really need to get a better handle on 
you know, the front, totally sus- the front suspension. Um, so is, yeah. Is there anyone else that you're working with in that you haven't given a shout out to that you need to? I don't think so. Well, no. Well then if yeah. anyone is interested that listens to the podcast and wants to help you out or, or looks to sponsor you, what's the best way to find you or reach out to you? Um, you can find me through my Instagram page, which is triple nickel five, 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 um, which has my email address right on it. Um, yeah, I mean, check out the uh, Red Bull did an incredible film um, about Bonneville that includes me. And then last year, the Wall Street Journal did um, a film about my land speed racing. And then this year, this last year, Petrolicious came with me to Bonneville and a few events at El Mirage. And they're still putting the final touches on on that piece. So look for that, I think, in March. Fantastic. March or, yeah, that should be really fun. Look, I'm excited. But Stacey, it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure having you here today. Thank you so much. And it's been a real, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. Kiwi's been fallen fast asleep, but I she's know, really been... enjoyed it too. She's so relaxed, so thank soothing. Thank you. Thank so, no, you. Thank you so much again and again. Thanks for having me. No, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for coming and visiting my humble abode. My pleasure. Anytime. Oh, that's great. And then everyone who's listening, please, as always, don't forget to leave at least a seven-star review. That's what we look for. <laughs> Make sure you type some very nice words that go along with it. And you can also find us, as always, at No Breaking on Facebook and Instagram. And if you've got questions, please let us know or anything like that. We'll always reach out. So we'd love to hear from you. And until then, guys, thank you so much for listening. And bye-bye. <laughs>